Hi, I'm Pastor Michael. I uh, recently had to get reading glasses as a result of uh, my aging eyes, so please excuse me. So, we have been doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at the passage of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's a lot going on in this text, uh, too much. And so what I've decided to do is I'm going to break up the text into three parts. I'm going to read one part, and then I'm going to give the teaching and expound on it, and then read the second part and so on. And um, each part can really be its own sermon, but it's going to be a very quick survey. So here's the outline. I have four points. Number one, we're going to look at the victory of the cross. Number two, we're going to look at the fulfillment of Scripture. Number three, we're going to look at women in the early church. And then number four, we're going to see the new family of God. And the last two points is going to focus on the the third reading text. Let me adjust my thing again. So point number one, the victory of the cross. I'm going to read to you from verses 17 through 22. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is the word of God. So you will notice that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the detail that the gospel writer John focuses on is the inscription. And in verse 19, the inscription reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then John goes on to relate this back and forth between Pilate, the Roman governor, and the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious council. The Sanhedrin are offended They want the statement modified. He said he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate refuses and he declares, what I have written is irrevocable. Pilate was using the inscription to mock the Jewish people and to mock Jesus. But John is telling us that something deeper is going on that underneath the surface details of the story, there is a deeper meaning to the story. And at the heart of it is a profound irony. What is irony? Those of you who are English majors, you know that irony is a situation in which what is said or what is written is the exact opposite of what is going on. And often irony is used to mock So, for example, if somebody makes a clumsy mistake 
And then you say to them, that was real smart. You don't actually mean that what they did was intelligent. You mean the exact opposite. But then why not just say that? Why not just directly, straightforwardly say, that was really stupid? And the answer is because it's so much more biting. Don't you see? To say it with sarcasm, with verbal irony, because you're mocking them. Pilate was mocking Jesus with this inscription. And in order to understand just how delicious this irony was for Pilate, you have to understand something about Roman crucifixion. Notice in the text that the crucifixion itself is noted with um, very little detail. In verse 18, all we're told is there they crucified him. The other Gospels reported it with the same level of brevity. Why not give us more details? And the answer is that in the ancient world, everyone already knew what crucifixion was. The agony and the shame of it. From early childhood, people would have seen throughout their lifetime literally hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. It was a commonplace tool of Roman control. The essence of Roman crucifixion, the essence of it is not, it is not just a public execution, but its purpose was to utterly humiliate and discredit the one being crucified. You have to understand that in the ancient world, after a battle was fought, the victors would very often lift up the slain bodies of the vanquished enemy as a way to crow about their victory, as a way to, you know, for all to see. But what the Romans did, and this is their evil genius, the Romans would lift up their enemies while he was still alive. And they would drive 10-inch iron spikes in through the wrist, between the bones, so that it could support the weight of the body, through the heels. And they would pin him to a wooden post with a crossbeam. And so the condemned would suffer this slow, torturous death, often lasting for days. And he would hang there completely naked, helpless, exposed to public mockery and the jeering of the crowds so that it became this pathetic and grotesque sight. And the crowds would come to, to gawk, but also turn away in disgust until finally the victim would die of either asphyxiation because he couldn't at last lift himself up to breathe or of heart failure because of blood loss and dehydration. That was Roman crucifixion. And you have to understand that in the ancient world, the cross, therefore, was the ultimate symbol of Roman power. It was a weapon of terror and violence used to cower and subjugate a conquered people. And on this particular cross in John chapter 19, Pilate affixed a sign. And the sign basically said, this man, this pathetic, screaming, 
vanquished man is your king. It was a delicious irony for Pilate. And he confidently declares, what I have written can never be erased. But if you have eyes to see, you know there is a double irony in the story. There is an irony on top of the irony. Because in Christ, God reverses the meaning of the cross so that it no longer is an instrument of defeat and shame, but it becomes the victory and the glory of Christ. The central thesis of Christianity is this. The cross was not the defeat of Christ. It was his victory. Do you understand? In theology, this is called Christus Victor. Christus Victor is a a Latin expression which means Christ the victorious one. It is one of the two major theories of the atonement. The atonement refers to the death of Jesus on the cross. And the question of the atonement is, why did Jesus have to die? What was the purpose? What was the meaning of his suffering? And one of the other, the, the other major theory or understanding of the atonement is one that you probably are quite familiar with. It's substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement says that Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute. And he took the penalty of our sin. And so you can understand the cross as a kind of legal courtroom in which the verdict of sin, which is death and separation from God, falls not on us, we who committed the sins, but on Jesus as our holy substitute. And through his death, we are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. That's substitutionary atonement. But alongside of that, And these are not rival, these are not competing theories of the atonement, but they are complementary. They they fit together. Alongside of that is Christus Victor. And Christus Victor says that the cross was not just a courtroom, it was a battlefield. The cross was a battlefield. And in order to understand this theology, you have to take a step back and see the whole story of the Bible as this cosmic battle between God and Satan. And in this cosmic war, it was Satan who struck the first blow in the garden when he tempted Adam to take the forbidden fruit. And when Adam grasped what did not belong to him, when he switched his allegiance and rebelled against God and became an ally of Satan, he brought forth the things of Satan. Death, sin, decay. And humanity, because we are in Adam, we became captives of this war. And rather than gaining autonomy and self-reliance, which is why Adam grasped the forbidden fruit, 
we became slaves of sin. We became captives of Satan. But in that garden, God gave a prophecy that one day the serpent would be crushed. In Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Euangelion, which means the first gospel, God says to the serpent, listen to this. It's one of the most famous, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. God says to Satan, I will put enmity. The word enmity there means war. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is Eve. And between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. The seed of the woman is the, is the Messiah. Unto us a child is born. And this Messiah will come. And he will be a savior, warrior king. And he will be our champion. And he will fight for us. And so the people of God, they're waiting for his coming. And this cosmic war rages on in the Bible, all through the Old Testament, until at last, in Bethlehem, a virgin gives birth to a child. His name is Jesus. But Satan, through the Roman Empire, which is really his puppet, it's the minions of Satan, he strikes the fatal blow against the seed of the woman on the cross. But Satan could not understand and he did not anticipate that on that same cross, the Messiah crushed the head of the serpent and he triumphed over evil. And you see this language all throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you two of them. Colossians 2.15, Christina quoted it in her prayer. It says, he disarmed. That's military language, by the way. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Those are the demonic forces of this world. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. Or listen to Hebrews 2.14. By his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. And so hear me now. Christianity is the declaration of the victory of Christ. And he achieved this victory, let me tell you, in a way that no human being could have ever imagined or conceived. Because the Messiah defeated death by his death. He destroyed sin by bearing the penalty of our sins. He overcame evil by submitting himself to the savage blows of evil. And so don't you see Christ is our divine warrior and the cross is the battlefield and therefore the inscription that Pilate so confidently wrote is actually the truest statement that has ever been made. He is the king. He is the king of kings. And Jesus shows us the very nature of this kingdom. 
Because on the cross, he shows us that the way up is to go down. The way to gain power is to become the servant of all. That glory comes through suffering. Greatness through lowliness. Life through death. Victory through the cross. That's the gospel. Isn't it marvelous? There's one last thing before we go on to the second point. There's another delicious irony in the story. Do you see it? Pilate proclaims this victory in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Those were the international languages of their day. And it was a sign of Roman imperial power. It was a reminder to the people that Rome was an empire that had conquered all of these nations, all of these people. But the irony is that Pilate was unknowingly proclaiming the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. And in that sense, it was a a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the Great Commission that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here we are, San Felipe Park. We're speaking the language of the Engels. And in this congregation, both here at the park and online at home, we represent the nations, all the peoples of the world, and we're worshiping King Jesus. It's the fulfillment of the inscription, don't you see? Let's go on to the second point, the fulfillment of Scripture. This is verses 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So in verse 24, the text here is quoting Psalm 22, verse 18. And the gospel writer says, this was to fulfill the scriptures. You know that expression, um, this was to fulfill the scriptures, appears actually four times in the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19. It appears here in verse 24, and then again in 28, and then again in 36, and then finally in verse 37. Four times it it shows up. It was very important for John that you understand Jesus died according to the scriptures. So let's examine that. This is a very important concept in the Bible. In verse 24, the text quotes Psalm 22, verse 18, which reads, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what's going on here? In the story, as I said before, the soldiers strip Jesus completely naked. And then they divide up his clothing, his belt, 
his sandals, his undergarments, his head covering. But when they get to his tunic, and the tunic was the outer robe that um, Middle Eastern men would wear in those days, they discovered that it was a seamless woven cloth. You have to understand that in the ancient world, clothing was very expensive. They didn't have um, industrial processes. And so this tunic was probably the single most expensive thing that Jesus owned. And because it was a single cloth, rather than divided into four pieces, which would destroy its value, the soldiers decide they're going to gamble for it. And so they cast lots to see who gets it. And John says, thus the scriptures were fulfilled. So what does it mean that the scriptures were fulfilled? Are we talking about, you know, direct straight line predictions where the literal words of the Old Testament map onto specific events in Jesus's life? Is that how Old Testament prophecy works? And my answer to you is no. And here I want to expand your understanding of Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment. And I'm just going to give myself a few minutes to do this. Okay, so hold on to your seats. Psalm 22 is a good place to start because next to Psalm 110, it is the most frequently cited passage in the Old Testament um, that's quoted in the New There are 10 direct quotes in the Gospels, four in Matthew, three in Mark, two in Luke, and one here in John. Jesus himself cites the opening lines of Psalm 22 from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is thinking about Psalm 22 from the cross. So let's look at Psalm 22 in its original context. The inscription of Psalm 22 tells us it was written by King David. And it describes a situation in his life where he is surrounded by his enemies. He is in deep distress. He is in emotional anguish. He feels like his life is forfeit. And David here, he uses dramatic and poetic language. Right? He uses these, these vivid metaphors to describe what seems to be a public execution. In the psalm, he describes the scene. The crowd is gathered. They're mocking. They're hurling insults. They're shaking their heads. It's a public spectacle. And at the center of the spectacle, a man is dying. His tongue is swollen from thirst. David says his hands and his feet are pierced. And then in verse 18, he says his garments were being divided. They were casting lots for them. He was so utterly abandoned and forsaken that the executioners were gambling for the spoils. The question we have to ask is, When did this happen in David's life? You know, he was in some pretty close scrapes. He was in some tight spots in his life. He was hunted and hounded by King Saul. He was persecuted by his enemies. His own son rebelled against him. 
But Psalm 22, again, is describing a public execution. You only cast lots for somebody's garments when they are so utterly abandoned that they're dying or they're already dead. So when did this happen in David's life? And the answer is that it never happened in David's life. He was never publicly executed. David was a king. He died in his old age. He never suffered a shameful death. So how do we make sense of his psalm? And here we have to understand Old Testament prophecy in a deeper way. And so let me give you a broader paradigm for Old Testament fulfillment. I want you to think of it as completing a story. Fulfillment is completing a story. Because you see, David's life was an incomplete story that Jesus fulfilled. When you read the life of David in First and Second Samuel, you see that he was a savior king who rescued Israel from their enemies. But as you read the story, you realize the rescue was incomplete. You realize, particularly in Second Samuel, that his reign as a righteous king was deeply flawed, profoundly coming short of the standard. And so the story of David leaves you hanging. It's like an ellipsis. You're waiting for the resolution of the story. And then 1,000 years later, in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, the Apostle Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And he says that David, being a prophet, foresaw and spoke of Christ. And so Psalm 22, in Psalm 22, David understood somehow in the midst of his suffering, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he foresaw a greater David, a greater sufferer, a greater abandonment, a greater savior and victory, and a greater kingdom that would last forever. That is how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Not just specific verses in the Bible, but he completes the story. All the stories of the Old Testament find their climax and resolution in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Third point, women in the early church. Let's read the final paragraph, verses 25 through 27. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
So John tells us that there were four women, four women at the cross of Jesus. Because what happened is that the male disciples had fled the scene. They, they had all forsaken their master Jesus with the exception of John. And John, he specifically identifies these four women. He gives us their names, at least three of them. And they all, three of them are named Mary. It's a very common name in the ancient world. The other Gospels also document many of these same women, sometimes giving us additional names like Salome. And when you read the Gospel accounts, they also tell us that it was these women who discovered, first discovered the empty tomb and who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. This reminds us of the importance of women in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the early church. When you read the Gospels, you recognize that outside of the 12 male apostles, Jesus had a larger circle of followers and disciples, and among them, many of them were women. So, for example, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four Gospels. She was a very significant person. You have the stories of Mary and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. We are given three separate stories about them. And in all of them, Lazarus really plays sort of a passive role. Mary and Martha were devout followers of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts and in the epistles, we see prominent leaders like Lydia, Priscilla, Phoebe. They've done an analysis of the closing greetings in Paul's epistles. At the end of each of his letters, he would personally greet and name significant members and leaders of each church. Fully one-third of those names are female names. I encourage you to read Romans 16. Romans 16 is one of the most beautiful passages. He goes through 27 people in the Roman church. These are leaders in that church, significant people in that church. 10 of the 27 are women. That's 37%. I want you to know how extraordinary this was in the ancient world. The ancient world was a profoundly sexist society where women were treated as second-class citizens. And women were thought of as inferior, not just in physical strength, but in intelligence, in moral capacity, in abilities. Women were dismissed and um, treated as invisible in the public square. You don't really see women active in public life. However, when you look at the early church, as they were following the example of Jesus, women were honored. Women were given prominence. There's this wonderful little book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. I really recommend this book. It's an excellent book. By the way, if you, want, if you also want to read um, about the early church, the history of the early church, the definitive work was written by Gusto Gonzalez. So it's an, another excellent resource. 
But Rodney Stark, in his seminal book, he's asking this question, how did this marginalized, persecuted Jesus movement rising up from this obscure corner of the Roman Empire, how did it completely transform and overtake the Greco-Roman world in three centuries? How did it completely vanquish not only its competitors, the Eastern mystery religions, but how did it put to end, put to death the classic paganism of the Roman Empire? And he says that a major, major reason is that Christianity was deeply attractive to women. He estimates, using historical records, that about 60% of the early church consisted of women. And you have to also consider that in the broader culture, in the broader society, women consisted of only 40% of the population because women were so devalued. Their lives were considered disposable. You know, one of the charges made against early Christianity is that it was a religion for women. One of the earliest critics of Christianity, Celsus, who is a second century Greek philosopher, he wrote this, listen to this. Christians show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, the stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. Christianity was mocked. It was mocked for attracting and consisting of so many women. And so why were women so drawn to early Christianity? And Rodney Stark, he outlined several reasons for this. He says, number one, the early church uniformly condemned extramarital sex not just for women, which their pagan counterparts also did for reasons of, of maintaining lineage and clarity in, in inheritance lines, but they condemned extramarital sex not just for women, but for men. This was unheard of in the ancient world. There was a profound double standard that nobody questioned, but Christianity taught men to be faithful to their wives. And therefore, Christian women enjoyed greater stability and equality in their marriages than their pagan counterparts. Rodney Stark says the, the second reason is that the early church prohibited infanticide. Infanticide is the killing of infants. It was basically the Greco-Roman world's version of abortion. And the overwhelming majority of infants that were killed were female infants. Because again, Women were devalued. They were considered worthless in that society. But the church protected and valued women as image bearers, as co-heirs with Christ. Rodney Stark says the third reason is that women were elevated and empowered at every level of ministry in the early church. They were hosting worship services in their homes. They were caring for the poor. They were visiting Christians in prison. They were traveling as missionaries. They were wealthy patrons financially supporting the church. They were involved at every aspect of church life and church ministry. One of the criticisms that I often hear 
that our modern culture has against Christianity is that the church is hopelessly and inherently misogynistic. We are misogynistic because we practice gender roles. But if you look at the record of early Christianity, if you read the New Testament documents, you will see that the early church maintained both, both biblical gender roles and the Bible outlines gender roles to be practiced only in two spheres of life. Only in the family and in the church because those are the only two safe places in a fallen and corrupt world to practice biblical gender roles. And let me emphasize that when I talk about the gender roles of the Bible, I am not, they are different from and they are not to be confused with traditional gender roles. Hear me now, let me say this clearly. Traditional gender roles are abusive. They are oppressive to women. They marginalize women. We are not talking about traditional gender roles. We are not talking about the gender roles as they are practiced in the world. And by the way, when I say the world, I'm also including the modern world. Because, you know, the modern world also has gender roles. And the modern world's practice of gender roles is also corrupt and it dehumanizes. Because in the modern world, women are so often reduced to objects of sexual desire rather than image bearers of God. And I think that the modern sexual ethic, which celebrates promiscuity, is predatory and it devalues women. I think that the Me Too movement of the past several years illustrates that point. But instead, the gender roles of the Bible is modeled on Jesus Christ, on his servant heart. And so anytime you see gender roles that do not look like Jesus and do not look like his character, we're not talking about biblical gender roles, we're talking about something else. And so the early church maintained, listen to me, both the gender roles, biblical gender roles, and and at the same time, women had enormous social power and influence in the early church. These are not opposing forces, these are not contradictory principles, but they fit together in the Bible. We don't have to choose one or the other because it's both. The Bible teaches both. Last point, the new family of God. So from the cross, Jesus speaks to his mother. And you know, it's remarkable because as he's suffering the agony of the cross, he's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about his family responsibilities. And you know, in the ancient world, there was no retirement system. They didn't have nursing homes, no social security, no Medicare. The only way a widowed elderly woman could survive is that she had to be taken in by her children. So Jesus, as the eldest son in the family, he's making arrangements for her physical care from the cross. 
and he turns to John. And where the text says the disciple that Jesus, whom Jesus loved, most commentators agree this is John referring to himself. And he says to Mary, this is your son. And he says to John, this is your mother. Now here's the question. Jesus had younger brothers. We know this. We know the names of two of them, James and Jude. They later became leaders of the early church. We know he had other siblings and other brothers. Why doesn't he transfer the care of his mother over to them? That would be the natural thing to do. Why does he give her to John? And the answer is really simple. We know that the brothers, Jesus' brothers, were not believers at this point. The other Gospels make this point that they did not believe in Jesus. Only Mary believed. And therefore, he entrusts the care of his mother to a disciple, to the believers of the church. I want you to know how radical this is. Because what Jesus is teaching us from the cross is that the bonds of discipleship are stronger than the bonds of your biological family. What Jesus is teaching us is that the church has a stronger claim on your allegiance than even your blood relatives. I know I know this is a difficult teaching to accept. But I want you to consider Matthew chapter 12 verses 46 through 50. Listen to this story. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. That's his biological family. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother. And my brothers, listen to this, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the church becomes your new family. It becomes your truest family. I want you to understand the profound implications for this. And I wish I I had more time to unpack all the dimensions of this. But let me just say, say this, very simple. I want you to know that this, this teaching pushes. It pushes and pushes against the culture of American individualism, which all of us just swim in and breathe in in our culture. It's everywhere. It's the default mode of our understanding. It guides our moral intuitions. And American individualism tells us that each and every one of us, we are in the end independent agents. And we do not have an obligation to any people or to any group in the end. But instead, the gospel tells us, listen to me, that we are bound. We are bound by mutual ties of obligation. We are bound together as members 
of the family of God. And I believe that in this pandemic, this is a truth we need to hear all the more. I want to close by appealing to you. I want to ask you to do this one practical thing. Yesterday, Christina was calling a sister in the church. And the sister was relating how Christina is the first person in the church that she has personally spoken to in seven months. She has not spoken to anyone in seven months. I think that this pandemic will have profound implications for our church. It has profoundly thinned out and frayed the the social fabric of our church. And it will have profound implications for the thickness of our community, for our unity, for our spiritual health. And I I want you to know that I, I am profoundly worried. I do not know what the future holds. I fear that there will be significant losses. Losses that are far-reaching and severe for our church. And so I want to plead with you. I want to ask you to do this one thing. And I've already mentioned it in my newsletter maybe a month ago. One of the things that the... uh, Wade and I and the elders have been doing is we have been individually calling people in the church to connect with them and to extend care to them. But can I be honest with you, that's not scalable. And so I want to ask everyone in the church, if you could, once every two weeks, that's it, once every two weeks for 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, Call somebody in the church. I'm not asking you to call somebody new that you don't know. That would be weird and awkward. Call somebody you already have a relationship with, but for whatever reason, you have not spoken to them in seven months. Call them and say, how are you doing? I care about you. You matter to me. You're important in this church. How can I pray for you? And in this way, we can begin to reweave the social fabric of our church. Because Jesus taught us from the cross, the church is the family of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for sending us this warrior king to go to the cross, to bear the penalty we could not bear to win the victory that we could not win. And now as we come to the table, we celebrate and we remember that salvific achievement. Knit us together as a family. Let us live gospel lives. Let us be a gospel community. Help us now in this pandemic. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.